Throw this down for a catch. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. Welcome to the Church in a Brewery podcast. This is the Chosen Retrospective Series, hosted by Nathan. Will you do us the honor, Rabbi? If that's where you keep the white sardines. Jason. Teacher, you have moved us all. John. Looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And Nick. It's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we are literally gonna spoil everything. So make sure you've actually watched this episode before listening to this podcast. I'm on official business. Only Roman business is official business. Today we are discussing The Chosen, season one, episode five, directed by Dallas Jenkins. This is Nathan. This is Jason. John. Nick. We are four guys that come from different backgrounds and we're all watching the show together and then we come here to discuss it together. So you'll see a variety of different views. Some of us are religious, some of us are coming from a non-religious background. So not too many places that you can go to get a discussion about something like this. So I think this is a really fun podcast to be a part of. And uh, yeah, so thank you guys for joining me. We had another comment from a YouTube user, Britta. Yeah, she's got some really good thoughts. She said she likes the way that we think in talking about the last scene of the previous episode, episode four, that scene where Simon is like on the beach saying like, get away from me, Jesus, I'm a sinner. She said that it was a game changer for her to start thinking about sin as a state of being imperfect instead of like a bunch of bad stuff that you do or or bad behavior or something like that. So that's a cool, different perspective. She also said, I made a (laughs) boo-boo. So I said something about Simon the Zealot. Simon, who becomes Peter, one of the main characters, is not the same guy as Simon the Zealot. Oh, I probably should have known that, but I'm like, well, thank you for correcting me, first of all. But uh, I'm like, why do you guys all have to have the same names? (laughs) It's so confusing. So I am curious. Yeah, yeah. If if Simon the Zealot is like this rebellious anarchist, I am curious to see when he'll be introduced to the show. So that'll be fun. What are you guys uh, drinking tonight before we get started? I have more expired Guinness Extra Stout. So hopefully uh, my tummy doesn't destroy me later. What about you guys? Wine. You know, being at this series is about wine. I gotta go ahead and... Oh, man. I'll get to clean it. It's one south of Wichita. We state. We state wine. Oh, okay. Was that from Newton? No, that was Grace Hill up there. Oh, okay. Winfield. Okay, cool. Nick, I saw you were uh, holding what looked like some very valuable beer. Yeah, well, so they call this a mixed berry goes ale. Mm. I think it's a Berliner. I think they're they're playing with their their beer descriptions there. But so it's a Berliner. So it's it's uh, a sour. It's got mixed berries in it, and it tastes just like it sounds, though it's got a slight hint of, of a sour aspect. But it's from a, a place called The Vale Brewing. I should know this. Colorado? Richmond. I don't know. They're, they're pretty prominent. and Someone will probably shoot me for not knowing it, but regardless. Yeah, that sounds good. So, I've been drinking 
a Boulevard Berry Noir. Ooh. And it, it looks just like that in color. It's pretty tasty. So I have just this much of Blanton's left from a 2017 purchase that I made. Yeah, I decided to use that this evening. I actually had a beer picked out, but I did not bring it with me. It's at my place. So <laughs> it'll be on the next episode. I promise Ooh. I will have beer at least one of these episodes. Suspense. I'm going to be wondering for two weeks, what kind of beer did you pick? Oh, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be that excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's... Yeah, totally not Smirnoff Ice or anything. So, <laughs> so, so, it's Z, so it's Zima. Zima. Yeah. Yeah, Zima. <laughs> coffee PBR. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> That's a thing. It is. Yep. Out here, they have this terrible beer called Milwaukee's Best, but it was <laughs> like thirty-five cents a can, so I bought it for a while and just like squeezed a lime into it. Damn. <laughs> There's something yeah, to say about stuff. To, my mom used to have these get-togethers, and she'd get a, a liquor store for a while, and we'd have people over, and she'd get about six cases of Budweiser or Bud Light, and she'd get six cases of Milwaukee's Best, and they'd serve that Milwaukee's Best after. <laughs> At that point, It's oh. fitting. Yeah, just like Very fitting. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> the old bait and switch. Hey, I did actually look into, Jason, you'd asked how people were taking this series, like if it was offending them or if there are any controversies. It looks like most people are taking the series pretty well. There's a little bit of controversy at times about them kind of writing a almost historical fiction type of background story into it. Some people don't like that, but I, most people seem pretty cool with it. I think the only other controversy I saw, the writer here, Dallas Jenkins, is the son of one of the Left Behind writers. And I know that series was a little bit controversial. I guess the Catholic bishops in Illinois declared the Left Behind series anti-Catholic at one point. But so far, so good with The Chosen. Nobody's getting too upset yet. So that's interesting. You guys find anything? You know, realistically, some of these things, I mean, we're having these conversations and stuff. I mean don't know what they said i mean nobody knows what went on so i mean it's is what it is i guess i mean Mm -hmm. the day i learned i hate admitting this but the day i learned that the bible is a collection of narratives and stories written by other people not by god himself or jesus it's like all right okay well this just took a whole other different turn for me here I was all these years worried about translations and things like that, only to find out now we're also relying on some of these guys' memories or letters that they wrote to other people that got tr- turned into one of the Gospels. I mean, there's all sorts of different origins for these these books, right? Or the books of the Bible. Yeah, that's interesting because we had that discussion, I think, at the brewery church one time. And, you know, I bring that up. I'm like, how can people remember these stories? I mean, these things are pages pages long. Yeah. Probably couldn't tell you tomorrow what we talked about today, word for word. Some of the most religious people say, well, God did have a hand in it because he helped them. He guided them in some way. And so, and I always think the Bible, the different views on that. Some look at it as, it says what it says, it's fact. This happened. Or some look at it as parables, like these are the stories, this message there. There's a lot of debate. I mean, Nathan Bubba knows a lot about when it comes to the way it's looked at. I learned a new, well, I don't know if it's a new view, but among the Bible scholars, I learned a view that I'd never heard before because... Well, the two views I know 
Some people believe it's more like mythology and there's value to the stories, but it's not true. Other people believe that it's like inspired by God and people wrote it down. So you've got all these different writers, but the story should fit together fairly well. There's a third view that I heard on the Naked Bible podcast by Michael Heiser. I discovered him like six months ago while I was looking up stuff that the rabbi at Brewery Church talked about, just trying to dig up some more historical background. That guy on Naked Bible podcast is a really good scholar, but he doesn't necessarily believe the way the divinely inspired theory is described is almost to some people sounds like magic, you know, or like God dictated it to them. He has a little bit different of a take. He thinks God like kind of prepared people for years by, I don't know, sort of inspiring them to dig into the Jewish background and mentality and be, be very well learned in the culture and very well learned in Jewish tradition and stuff. So it's more of like they were being prepared on a scholarly level to write something, not so much they heard God say this and they wrote it down. They say the Holy Spirit like inspired people to write these things, right? Well, I'm not saying that didn't happen, but he takes more of an academic approach to how it was written and still believes it's true. So I had not actually heard that theory before, and I thought that was interesting. So now I know three different theories on it. For an experiment, just by yourself, think about something that happened, say, five, ten years ago. You know, write write it down. Write down what you thought, you know, all of the, the details and the facts. One, see how long it is. And two, reach out to someone else. So, like, if I can remember a story about Purdy that we were involved with 10 years ago, I write I hope it down. You don't. Write it down. It's compared. <laughs> right. But the point is, there are some important things that I say important, uh, major things that I can remember. I feel like I remember a lot of details, but I don't know about hundreds of pages worth. So, anyway, go ahead, Purdy. Sorry. I don't want to deviate too far from the episode. I think this kind of leads into a discussion that I think we were all interested in, in terms of the Council of Nicaea and how the books of the Bible were selected in many ways. But one thing that I find interesting is how you have multiple accounts of similar or the same stories throughout the New Testament. And I think that's there for a purpose in some regards. And Nathan, I know you and I have had a lengthy one-on-one about this in terms of those first-person eyewitness accounts, no different than us today seeing an event. We can have different accounts of that same event, but the general theme maintains its consistency. I would love to dive into this deeper once we get through this series. So let's put it on our possible follow-up discussion topics because, uh, I got to be honest, I mean, that whole divinely inspired, you know, that's my background, but there's some mystery to me about how that would work. And what Michael Heiser said appeals to me too. So I think that'd be a worthy discussion. We should put that on the future discussions list. Sounds good. Okay. You guys want to dive into the plot here on this episode? Let's Let's do it. This is from IMDb again. Nicodemus interrogates John the baptizer while Jesus and his students make their way to a wedding celebration in Cana. During the ceremony, Jesus's mother, Mary, makes a special request. Basically, she wants more wine. 
All right. Well, that was a pretty vague plot summary. There's a lot more minutia. Let's dive into it. All right. Opening scene. Mary is searching for Jesus. This doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with the rest of the story. Maybe I'm wrong and you can tell me. But what is interesting about this is Jesus is at the temple, apparently teaching the other rabbis, and his parents don't know where he is for like three days. Am I right? Like, I didn't know that it was that long. You got terrified parents. So we have had someone at Brewery Church say that they believe Jesus actually sinned. And I said, oh, where do you see that? Or, or why do you think that? And they cited this incident. They said, well, look what he did to his parents. He was at the temple and like didn't tell him where he is. So that's interesting. What do you guys think about this opening scene? And did Jesus do something wrong here? Or what is this? There's two things in this opening scene. I think this series kind of covers the sin part. Because she said... I thought you were with your father. And then he says, I was. He's not talking about Joseph in this chance. And mm-hmm. he's talking about God. And so then did he really sin if he's with his father? I mean, he said he was going to be with his father. So, I mean, I mean, I guess it's up to interpretation. Also, one oh. thing I thought was interesting was it starts off, it says 8 AD. And she's talking to the vendor looking for Jesus. And she said he's a boy about 12 years old. So I thought the whole idea of the calendar starts at zero is when Jesus was born. So what, what's the four-year discrepancy? Oh, wow. Yeah, there That's is a, a observation. There is a discrepancy. I thought Jesus was born late, like 2 or 3 AD. I'm going to have to look that up. But it doesn't line up perfectly. I don't really know why. I think it's because they're not exactly sure what year Jesus was born and crucified. They have like a two-year range or something. That's my vague understanding of that. I completely agree with Jason. In terms of key takeaways, that's kind of what I picked up on. The only other thing that I I had to add to that was the way his parents were portrayed. And this is the only time so far that Joseph has come into the picture, which, frankly, I have to give that guy a lot of props, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of this miraculous birth, the wife that you're married to suddenly is pregnant and it's not yours. And he kind of has to accept that. And he's gone a long ways. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think he necessarily gets a ton of credit. And I, I definitely appreciate his perspective on, on things. But just in general, in terms of like a parent being worried about your child I mean, you're in a major metropolitan area. Your kid's been missing for three days. You're frantically looking. Uh, I think that was a big takeaway. And that's a realistic point that could even be a lot of people could connect with current day. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus was part of the original, uh, original Maury Povich. You are not the father. Yeah. God, I love it, Joseph. Uh, I encourage you to watch the, I think it's the pilot, which is the Christmas special or whatever. They show Joseph in there. I like when his mother's you know getting on to him, like you're supposed to stay with your dad, and Joseph's kind of like angling his head back towards the temple. He did it multiple times. It was kind of funny. He's I did not catch that. Yeah, it was it was subtle, but it was pretty funny. But to one of the questions you asked, you know, did he sin? Well, what's what's the definition of sin? You know, is it just disobeying or breaking a rule? Well, okay, then sure, but you know, he was with his father, he thought he was with his father in the temple teaching, right? That's a gray area. I don't know if that's one of the 
points I'd hang my hat on to say Jesus sinned. I'm sure there were other things that were closer. Whole honor our mother and their father stuff there. And if you also notice, he did call him Joseph the father also. He said Abba, which is Greek yeah. father. Mm. And so he didn't make that reference. And so I was like, oh, it's interesting to use that word. It's like, and that turned out they were kind of interchanging father and that. Interesting. Yeah, it didn't bother me too much. I mean, this could be a simple miscommunication situation. Uh, not to open a can of worms, but the rabbi at Brewery Church, he said in the original language, there's two types of sin. So I know nothing about that. So I will have to look into that. I've been curious. Anything else on that scene before we move on to John the Baptizer? I was thinking, man, these guys waited three days to start looking for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, like after, after like an hour or so, like, where's my kids have Like, I don't think after three days. <laughs> I kind of took it as they'd been looking for him for three days and just now found him on the third. Yeah. But yeah. I, looking. Ever had I, I hope, party. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I hope it wasn't a scenario where it was like, oh yeah, third day, we should probably look for our kid. <laughs> the first <laughs> we need days. to go home. So, <laughs> goodness, time so, away from uh, the kids. And why was his face dirty? You got, was it just me? It looked like his face was dirty. I said, if he just got back from having a class, why, why is his face dirty? I don't know. I, I didn't pick up on that. Well, in the next scene, I believe we see the debate between John the Baptist and Nicodemus. Now, I'm seeing them bringing back that theme in this show that there's a disconnect between what Jesus taught or what was intended to be in the Bible teaching-wise and how people are carrying it out. So John the Baptist starts bringing up this disconnect between what Jesus is teaching and what scripture teaches and what the Pharisees are doing to carry that out. There's this whole disconnect. I think they're bringing this up every single episode. So it seems like a theme. And I still think the exact same problem exists today, which is something we've been talking about, but it, it really comes to a head in the scene. What did you think of this encounter in the prison? We need a special on just John the baptizer. I need to know more about this guy. He is awesome. Yep. It's just crazy. It looks like he could be on the Flintstones. Yeah. He says multiple times, Jewish law can't judge you, or what what's what what is it he says? I can't educate you with he's acknowledging that he's a Jewish citizen, so it would be inappropriate for Roman law to be the uh you know the status quo in terms of his punishment or how that's carried out. They open their discussion with, with that premise. And then at the ending, John the Baptizer kind of turns it around back on him and is like, hey, Jewish law, remember? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, touche. The kind of John is like two legal systems. They're kind of like eight legal system with federal, in that case here, Jewish federal system. And John the Baptist didn't baptize her. He didn't break a Roman law. And so, I mean, why is he there for? I mean, when it comes to domestic stuff, religious issues, those are Jewish issues, not Roman issues. Yeah, I suppose I don't blame John the Baptist for being hostile because he was arrested over, what, false pretenses, basically. But mm. yeah, he's pretty hostile to Nicodemus. And it is kind of weird because like Nicodemus doesn't seem to be a threat. And he's being nice to John the Baptist at first, but like John the Baptist is still throwing it back. I sort of get the sense that historically this guy was a little bit of a rebel because he was always talking smack about the Pharisees and calling them snakes and stuff. Jesus will also call them snakes way later. So interesting. If you notice some themes there, you know, we talked about the prosperity gospel. 
John makes a reference of he does not like them, the whole group of them. He says, you guys, when you say spend enough in a day to three. Yeah, I don't like your frock, which is his yeah. outer yeah. garments. Yeah. 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 He said the vestments could feed three children from Nazareth for a month. Yeah, something like that. So he's just talking again. It's an attack on the church again about, mm-hmm. which is the theme we hear today, wealth and what they're spending. Yes. Not really the people. Actually, I just heard about an Instagram account. I can't remember what it's called, but it keeps track of expensive designer shoes worn by megachurch pastors. And it's like $1,000 shoes that they're wearing. And all they do is they show these pastors' shoes. <laughs> like Tammy Faye Baker. Who's that? Remember, remember, you know who, you know who the, Tammy Faye Baker is? No. It was, what was it back in the 80s? The, he was the one that said that God said that he needed to raise a bunch of money or he was going to die or something. He ended up getting in trouble. He went to prison for that. But they, when he raided their home, she had like thousands of thousands of thousands of pairs of shoes in her closet. I mean, she had a closet oh, wow. that was as big as a bedroom just for shoes. And so they were, they were the original prosperity gospel people. Like when you look at it, they're Man. way before Joel Osteen or any of those. Well, on the other hand, I know a couple pastors who they've been driving beaters for years. And one of them told me he really wanted a Cadillac when he was younger. And, you know, he maybe even a, used one or something but he was afraid to buy one because he was afraid of the criticism he would get from people about the vehicle he was driving so that's interesting so there's like two ends of the spectrum right there that's actually a good argument for another discussion should the ministers be driving corvettes i'm not saying at least the same type of car or at least have the same type of house as the people in your church i mean if people in your church are driving cadillacs and you know, should you also be able, able to drive a Cadillac? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, if nobody in your we church has that, but he's driving beat beat up cars, then I could be kind of an argument there. We can quickly, quickly fall off the deep end on that topic, especially with, with me. My very first day that I went to the church that we currently go to, which is admittedly a mega church, uh, Northview. It's it's massive, but it's it's a good place. They were talking about their message, and I told Liz, my wife, I said, "Going to this," I said, "If they." preach the entire time about giving money or whatever i said i'm gonna lose my mind like i understand the tithing but they better not mention it man their whole sermon was like you got to give more now than you've ever given before we're we're trying to go above and beyond and i was like are you kidding me this this is the first one and uh, this church was on the news for they paid off like hundreds of thousands of dollars of people's medical bills and things like that and that that's sure that's good but then i I see our pastor driving a Corvette. Oh, that joke I made? I was like, it was true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're people. I, I get it. Pastors are people. This is their job. This is their hobby. Their, not, sorry, not hobby. This is their occupation. So if they make money doing it and they can make a living and they're comfortable, the power to them. But it needs to be right. It needs to be because you're from a successful church that's a successful business entity that does not get taxed. I think this really leads back to optics in a lot of ways. Uh, again, I don't disagree with anyone. I necessarily don't want to see these mega churches, pastors there making millions of dollars a year. I also think they have a right to be supported in a lot of ways. And again, if my dream car is a, a Corvette and I'm a car guy and I'm super passionate about that, I, I don't necessarily have an issue with those material items as long as it's not made to be the focus of 
what's presented or a direct result of, you know, I need a raise because I need a Corvette or I need a Cadillac or a, a Bentley. But, you know, I mean, again, they're people. They can save, they can be frugal. And maybe that's something that they've saved up for, for, you know, 10 years to get, I, I don't know. And a lot of examples we, and rightfully so, give criticism and skepticism to the intents of those purchases. And I, I just think it goes back to optics. In this scene in particular, one of the things that, um, again, getting back to the whole Jewish law and Roman law, Nicodemus is kind of trying to present himself to John in a, a fashion that's like, hey, you should be thanking me. We don't want to set precedent for the Romans to come in here to overstep their bounds, because once we do this with you, it can be done to other people. So I'm giving you an opportunity. And it was almost like Nicodemus was presenting himself in that light of, you should be thanking me. You know, I, I'm not necessarily your adversary. So stop coming at me so adversarial. Uh, show me more respect. And, and John just didn't care, <laughs> to be frank. That was the main impression I got from both of them during that scene. I kind of agree with John a little bit. I think he did come in here that way or in an official capacity. But I think Nicodemus is, he's kind of desperate at this point. He doesn't know how this demon got cast out. And so his thought is, I'm going to come in his official capacity after they have this back and forth. And he more or less tells John, I'm not here in official capacity. Just a dude trying to figure out you know, what the hell happened. And he even takes up that. Then, you know, John gets the more relaxed. He says, so no one else knows you're here. He's like, no. And he's like, oh, this guy is really seeking answers, Dan. This guy's not. How desperate do you have to be at this point to go to John? I mean, he's just looking anywhere he can to find. I kind of felt like happened. he was he was playing good cop, bad cop with himself yeah. <laughs> during that whole interaction. <laughs> like going to visit Hannibal Lecter or something for answers. <laughs> well, when he took his hat off, I wondered if that was supposed to symbolize something because, you know, when he's teaching at those other dinners, he's got his hat on. He looks very formal. He comes in here. Like, are, are they supposed to take their hat off? Is this supposed to say, I'm meeting you as a person. I'm not a rabbi right now is that what that's supposed to mean or i'm not a pharisee right now it humanizes oh, it. yeah. i'm just it's just a man-to-man -man conversation now yep. yeah that's what i thought the thing I, that i think is the parallel to today is john seems to be ticked off at the pharisees because they've got all this expensive clothes they turn the other way with the people so the parallel to the megachurch pastor would be like the guy driving the lamborghini or something who's not doing anything for the community. I read a Barna study this week and it said that like 51% of people cannot identify a single thing that the church does to benefit the community. And the rest of them, they tend to say they feed the poor or something. So that's very interesting. I don't know, you know how accurate that is. I know churches that I think are doing good things for the community and I know ones that I think I can't tell what they're doing. So the perception is bad. So clearly we're in a similar situation where something probably needs to change and maybe they need to start thinking about being there for the people or something. But that's the same issue that John seems to have with the Pharisees. And he's like, not even gonna give them 
you know, a minute to defend themselves or explain themselves. Yeah. How does John know this information? He already knows, like when he starts, he says that this guy's doing miracles. He's like, doing them now? He goes, as soon as he's going to be doing them in public. So how does John have access to this um, well, I think part information of, only Jesus has? Part of that is it, it's not necessarily he knows exactly who or what the miracles are, are going to be or who they're done by. It, it's more so he's relying back on prophecies. That's kind of my takeaway with when Nicodemus makes the comment about him being flippant with the Torah that he he's referring back to these ancient prophecies and his interpretation of those, but they're completely different than how the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the main Jewish leaders are interpreting them. I see that. In addition to that, I see, I think he knows that in that system, as soon as Jesus starts doing stuff publicly, it's not going to be very long until somebody tries to kill him. I kind of took it that way. Well, yeah, he's sitting in a jail cell right now for <laughs> baptizing yeah. people. So. <laughs> well, what you were saying about the prophecies, this was a new thought to me. Nicodemus, the thing that really ticks him off or that he finds offensive is the idea that God has a son, and that's not referring to the people of Israel, not right. the Jews. And I had never heard this before or seen this this way. Like, I thought, okay, the Jews who are still waiting for a Messiah today, if they are, were waiting for God's son, you know? I think one of the prophecies says something along those lines, but did they not really think that this person was actually going to be God's son? Is that not how they saw these prophecies? I guess this is another thing about Jewish lore that I don't know. I think it's a rabbit hole we could go down definitely pretty deep. But yeah, I I mean, the one thing about prophecies is that they're somewhat open to interpretation. You know, it's not necessarily a cut and dry roadmap from point A to point B, but uh, there's definitely check marks that you could go down a list and, and qualify an event or a person for fulfilling one of those. That was part of the point i think of the hierarchy of the jewish faith was these expert scholars who have studied these teachings have this in-depth more intimate knowledge with the text to where their interpretations were perceived as accurate mm. so they have street cred yes he's talking there the nicodemus he says he said, God only has one son of Israel. And if yeah. you know, yeah. I, I keep thinking of what was it was John 3.16, where God gave his only son. I'm thinking it's interesting they used that exact wording at that time there. I was like, word for word. I was like, that can't be a coincidence. It had to be written into the show that way. That interpretation would mean that only the Jews would be saved, correct? So John the Baptist mm-hmm. is suggesting, you know, the door is open for others too. And that's, is that what's offensive here? I mean, he's really offended. <laughs> well, he's also dedicated his entire life up until this point to this cause yeah. and, you know, following and, and pursuing this. So, I mean, it would be like somebody coming in on you while you're visiting them in a jail cell and telling you that, hey, everything you've dedicated your life to, no, <laughs> it it's doesn't pulling- matter. 
Yeah, it's pulling <laughs> the rug out from under your worldview. Like you got to have an identity crisis at that point. For sure. But doesn't Nicodemus already have some conflicts? So he's already having some questions. I mean, that's been established already. Yep. Yeah, that's why I thought I was surprised at how harshly he rejected what John said. Like it's not even a possibility. So that tells me something's probably going to happen to make him question more because he's not desperate enough to think about that as a possible solution, I guess. Rules of storytelling, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but doesn't Nicodemus kind of give um, kind of a little advice before he leaves? He goes, if you say is what's true, then you better leave because it's not going to benefit him. Then John's like, well, I don't, he doesn't need my help. I mean, it's like, okay, he's well, kind of believing a little bit. He's leaving the door open for what John's saying. He's giving him advice now. But This yeah. seems to be Nicodemus's character throughout this whole story so far is that he's open to the events around him and what he's seeing. He's still grounded in terms of his belief in the Torah and his interpretation of scripture. But at the same time, he's not, he's inquisitive enough to know that he doesn't know everything, but he also doesn't want to make that public knowledge. <laughs> um, I don't well, know. He'd be in trouble if they found out he was questioning. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> he'd probably be killed. I think it's funny. I always wonder why people get so, offended at some of those ideas or questions and they got to label people a heretic and kill them because i wonder like can't god defend himself you just want to shut them down before they spread their lies that's the ultimate aspect right you hide under the flag that you're protecting god and all of that but what's the actuality you're shutting down someone who's talking against you under the flag that i am protecting god's name no man you're you're shutting up the people that don't believe in what you do. That's that's what that heretic or blasphemer label is. If you're really thinking about stuff with a spiritual lens, then like that's a very human way of seeing the situation, right? But if you're thinking through a spiritual lens, isn't God able to keep the truth out there? Can humans really do that much to mess it up? I mean, I don't know. That's a whole nother debate. <laughs> we, oh, should, not, we should go back to the next debate. We do that much to mess it up. That's a... <laughs> I feel like free will comes well, in They sure can mess it up. Yeah, you and I know, like, they, they can really mess it up. What I mean is, can they mess it up to the point where, like, like, if God exists and he's all-powerful, can they mess it up to the point where, like, everything's lost and his mission is unachievable? I don't think that. I think that's blasphemy right there. Hey, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I, coming I for do you, have some people who think I'm quite heretical. <laughs> if they're coming, I hope they come during the podcast because that'll be good viewership. Oh <laughs> yeah, steaks oh, and pitchforks. And... I'm I'm a pacifist, man. I I you know me. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you are; it matters what they are. Well, we could talk about the next controversy of the show. You're the taking wine. over, John. If they come from John, you're taking over. You're the narrator now. Yeah, oh, gotcha. <laughs> I'm, I'm already going to be killed in my sleep for starting the brewery church. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've got this wedding storyline. Honestly, when this first started, I was having trouble following it until the characters like developed a little bit, and then I understand they're trying to show that this family who's hosting this wedding is in a pretty desperate situation. They're trying to save their reputation and stuff like that. But yeah, it, I think this is interesting. We see them 
talking, planning about the wine, what they're going to do. And one of them says, when everyone is stuffed and senses are dull, we will serve the lesser wine. Now that is in the Bible, like that's part of the story. And that's part of their culture at the time. That's what they did at weddings. I thought I'd been taught at one point that a wedding was like a week long celebration where people camped out. So that's a lot of, uh, well, a lot right. of wine being consumed. So that does bring the whole wine argument up because, um, I mean, especially since I got the brewery church started, I have a lot of people who will contact me online and tell me, hey, man, you know, Jesus never drank. That was grape juice. So we do have, have this yeah. whole controversy we could talk about because the show, you know, they, they definitely take the wine as alcohol route. We can see that with this opening discussion here. So I think that's interesting. They drank alcohol back then because it was sanitary. If you went and pulled water from the local wherever, anyone's cattle or whatever could have been drinking from it. But if you had beer or wine, wine or mead was most likely what it was, it ferments. And when it ferments out, it's, it's safe for you. It's, it's, and when you heat it to, to brew it, it, you make it sanitary. So that's, that's kind of a thing. Like we can, whether Jesus drank wine or grape juice, man, he probably drank wine because he didn't want to die of cholera or some random organ trail disease it's not he's not trying to get hammered i agree with nick and i think there's other historical accounts that actually back it up a lot of historical accounts are fermenting for a reason i mean we want stuff to last great juice is not going to last months and months and months without some kind of fermentation with that more of a natural process i don't think it's like table wine now is 12 percent. i doubt it's that high it's probably three to four percent maybe five percent so it's not unrealistic just based on other biblical, not just the Bible, all hist- all types of history that they're drinking fermented drinks, mead, beer, wine, mm-hmm. whatever it is that they can do to make things last. I mean, it's there's a necessity there for it. It's also like Nick said, there's also health as well. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. buy the argument that he's drinking grape juice. It's, no. I mean, I think it's just this anti-drinking, you know, kind of prohibition yeah. mentality that's trying to impact that. I think there's two things here. One, isn't there a story of Moses and part of the reason why he didn't get into the actual promised land with the Israelites was because he overdrank, overindulged, and sinned. Am I the only one that recalls that? Or I, I don't remember book, chapter, and verse on it, but that was a story that kind of stuck with me. I thought that was the incident where he strikes the rock to draw water out. He kind of did it flippantly. He wasn't supposed to. Noah got off the ark and made Maybe a wine it was and he yeah. got drunk and then uh, exposed what himself. Next is up for yeah. debate too. Yeah, <laughs> it's potentially X-rated and controversial. Yeah, yes. need to reread the story yeah. of the ark. We be on that both that long time frame. We dang <laughs> Apologies there. I, I yeah no, got that okay. mixed up. And then the other thing, too, is, you know, I, I have heard in, in terms of what's considered good wine, it's still fermented, but I've heard that the closer it is to the grape or the process, that the better or the higher quality it was, because it was based more off taste, not necessarily seeking alcohol content. But that fermentation process has always been involved with winemaking. 
I, I mean, it's a fundamental feature of what it is. It's just how pure it is and how close to, again, the, the date of that whole process. And Nick, I know you're a home brewer and can speak for hours on this type of stuff. So I actually did a little bit of research on this subject. So off the top of my head, the reasons I already thought Jesus probably drank and drank with people are because there's a couple scriptures. There's one in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, verse 34. It says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Basically, the religious people are accusing Jesus of being a drunkard. I don't think that they would do that if he wasn't drinking something alcoholic, wasn't around alcohol. I know a pastor that did like a historical study of what wine was back in Bible times around Jesus's time. He said it was about like a modern beer in terms of alcohol content, but there's also... Let's say it's less than a modern beer. Yeah, I mean, even in the 1700s, they were making beer at home. That was that stuff was we got to five percent. That was a miracle. It was. Mm-hmm. We're talking three, four percent, maybe the yeah. most. Like a Coors Light. The deal is the Zima. The, the, yeah, Zima. <laughs> the, the yeast, the yeast that we have today that, that get us these higher alcohol contents. Not to say they weren't around back then, but back in these times, fermentation occurred because of God. Right. I mean, that's that's just what was understood. Nobody knew until the late 1800s, early 1900s, how fermentation actually occurred. Oh. So the, the point of all of that is the yeast they had available, it, it wouldn't have gotten you the 10, 15, 20 percent. You literally mix it all together. You set it outside and there's just mm-hmm. wild fermentation. So whatever yeah. natural so there, natural yeah. fermentation. Yeah. And, and there's not a whole lot of yeast, natural bacteria that that can just live in a high alcohol content. That's also how fermentation works. And I think when you look at this here, I mean, it's just kind of hit the elephant in the room. I mean, the way I look at the scripture, scripture talks about drunkenness is bad. If you look at modern day Christianity, which is to my mind wrong, 150%, they think that drinking is bad. So it becomes kind of where you look at most scholars that study is like, no, it doesn't say alcohol, it says drunkenness. And if you look at the references you even made there, Nathan, where they're actually talking about, they're not addressing alcohol as a whole, they're addressing people getting drunk, drinking too much. I would say you had to drink a lot of alcohol at that level of the ABV at that time. <laughs> I mean, uh, get drunk. I think that's a lot of wine. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I brought this up, uh, you know, kind of what you mentioned, is the disconnect between what the story actually says and how people see the story. You know, the disconnect between Jesus probably drank wine. The word used in the original language is oinos. It means fermented wine. So I Googled that, and there's still some sources that are like saying, no, this wasn't alcoholic, but it's like religious newspapers. The scholars think this meant alcoholic wine. It's non-scholars who seem to be pushing back. I find that interesting. It's, I mean, it's not like that's an essential thing, but there's like a rejection of things in the scripture that by people who are following it that are fairly clear, you know, and I don't know where that rejection comes from, but I think that's kind of what you're seeing being portrayed with some of the Pharisees. At least that's my take. That comes in the turn of the century there. We have this whole like period where it's going to change. I also think it's interesting because you look at people 
the Christians that are actually opposed to drinking, they always say we're Judeo-Christian values and all this. Okay, but you know, the Jewish population drinks. Most of them do. They don't have a problem with it. You look at them as God's people. Oh, wow. And I, I think about how well they know the text, too. That's telling. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of medicinal value to alcohol in and of itself, even if we're talking about low ABV, you know, and, and I'm sure... It's been around for a very, very long time. They knew about those benefits, both health and medicinally, that came from these substances. But just like with anything, if you take it in excess, that's when there's issues. And again, Mm -hmm. I I have no problem going down that rabbit hole of something in excess. Sure, gluttony, an addiction, it's... Mm -hmm something to avoid but when it's done in moderation and in balance it's actually beneficial mm-hmm. even donuts man too many donuts everything in It'll moderation <laughs> one, one one interesting detail i caught i think it was thomas was describing what's in the wine that he made and i don't know if you guys listen to all of that but at one point he said honey oh and i wanted to be like uh if you fermented it with honey bro chacho it's now mead Boom. What is need? Fermented yeah. with honey. Yep. Honey. Yeah. Oh. Was it? I think it was Rama. It's like that in there. It's, if there's actually yeast in there, I mean, Nick, verify that. Yeah. Yeast likes that, the sweet stuff, sugar. That's going to boost alcohol up a little bit. Yep. Mm. Things like that. It's like, there. oh, we calling it a little honey wine. Oh, you made a wedding. mead. I'm just kind of curious what that wine tastes like. I'm sitting here thinking, well, first of all, we got this. We talked about the wedding. I knew what was going to happen. I knew Jesus was, was going to make the wine. I'm like, dude, just make the damn wine. Let's go. Let's make the wine. And so then when they were talking about, I'm like, I wonder how that, I wonder if that really tastes that good. I was like, I wonder what that tastes like. And so I was just kind of curious. And I got a feeling it probably doesn't taste that good compared to modern day wine. But Well, I mean, oh, if, I if you're used to drinking like Everclear and then you get a Zima, you're going to think, wow, this Zima is fantastic. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I, I like it kind of so- makes me think of someone took the original beer recipe there that they had. You know, one of the first things they found of any man writing was the recipe for beer. Someone tried to remake it exactly like it was, and it tastes like it was horrible. <laughs> it probably <laughs> was. You know, they they didn't like, have ice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the original beer recipe would have just been grain and water and yeast. I mean, it tastes yeah. like Milwaukee's best. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you if you think about the scene, remember I think it was oh, was that Simon or maybe who becomes that? Regardless, in the the last episode where he's talking with his wife at the end and she's stepping on the grapes, and she's like, "You should help me." And he like, "Oh, let me wash my feet." And he legitimately just like dips them in water and jumps in. I was like, "No, that's not even close to clean." Yeah, it's good enough. There's I'm like a hundred different things that could kill them in a day, so that's the oh, least yeah. of their worries. That's true. <laughs> was, it just, was it just me or this particular show have a lot of um, wine-related stuff to it? I mean, you had there with Simon's wife. She's making wine, and next thing you over here, Tom has wine. I'm like, this is like a lot of wine. I mean, it was so much so that I actually paused it and went up and got some wine. And so I was like... <laughs> I, I think it points back to what I said, though. Like, it was the main... These type of beverages were the main thing to consume back then, just because yeah. the various reasons we described. You didn't do it, then you're struggling. And yeah, I was going to say, I, I would say, I'm and his wife's probably doing it for personal consumption. Yeah, yeah of course. Like 
that's kind of why I admire the show, though. It's like cut through the controversy and try to show, look, this is how it was, you know, <laughs> like forget about the grape. I mean, the grape juice controversy thing is so like prominent that like every couple months, somebody messages me online, like on the Berea Church page and tells me, look, dude, if you just pray to God, he'll tell you that it was grape juice. I'm like, OK, thanks, man. <laughs> You just pray to God. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, I, I certainly don't want to argue with anybody, but you know, I don't know well, these people. I don't, they're strangers to me. I don't know why they would go out of their way to like bug me about it. Well, the, Catholic, I think it's, like, the Catholics also give wine when they give sacrament as well. Mm-hmm. That's another old church that has a history, not just to use with the Catholic as well, or also give wine. So, I mean, yeah, argue against the... I think we know through data and information that fermented alcoholic wine was prevalent in that time period. At the same time, this is called wine. And the miracle that occurred there was presented in a way based off of all the accounts that are in the New Testament as being the best. And knowing what we know about the time period, and it makes sense, we do it current day, even at like parties and Uh, get-togethers where it's like you serve the best first and then when the senses are slightly dulled the lesser quality comes out I feel like that's fairly well documented in this Mm -hmm. scenario to where regardless of the alcohol content or how strong it was whatever it was it was better than the best that was presented and that's the main takeaway because he had a little speech there what do you call the guy the caterer like on the caterer, he he stops. This is the best one I've ever tasted. Usually, they give the it's like you said, they're done. Like, yeah, why don't we go ahead and talk about the uh, climax here, the the miracle? Because Jesus doesn't really seem like he wants to make the wine. Well, I think this kind of gets back to John the Baptist and that whole interaction with Nicodemus, where John saying, you know, he's still performing miracles in secret. Jesus isn't really at least how it's portrayed he's not confident enough in his abilities to want to go public he's just kind of wanting to get his group together he's still trying to get his disciples pulled together Uh, i mean at this point we're still missing half the team so i took it more as like that whole i don't want to make a big deal out of this i know i can probably do it but i don't know at the same time he's not feeling confident in his abilities or the direction that he wants to take maybe not necessarily the abilities but more so the direction in terms of is now the right time yeah is is now the right time for me to make myself known make myself public mm-hmm. when you say that though like does he ask that because of like where he's at in his journey or from a more specific standpoint of my most public thing I'm going to do is turn water into wine at a wedding. I think at this point, he's still a man. End of the day, he's still a person. And those same emotions that we experience, he still experiences too, right? Um, I mean, I I know you've played sports, Nathan, you've done sports as well. And it's, you go into these competitions sometimes and as confident as you can be, there's still a little bit of doubt in the back of your mind at the end of the day, you've trained for this, you, you know what's coming, you, you prep for it. I know every time I stepped to a starting line or went up to 
bat at a plate, there's always been that much of a doubt in the back of my head that I'm just like, okay, am, am I really good right now? Like, I got to make sure my head's on straight here. Do you think had his mom not kind of pushed him? Because I think, I think without a doubt, she pushed him to do this. But do you think had his mom not pushed him, he would have done it? No, nope. I don't think so. I, I just think this is such like a thanks, mom. Maybe, I don't, I don't know if this is the right word, but this is such a vain first big public thing, and I, I, I don't know why I can't stop hanging my hat on that. But it's like, dude, this is a party where one family is trying to keep up with the Joneses because their child is marrying a rich family. They don't want to be frowned upon. And I know status and society, you know, that's important, but like this, this is going to be the first documented public thing that Jesus does is he helps this, what I would term probably middle of the road family get nice wine. So that way this high end upper class family doesn't look down upon them. That just, I, I don't know. It seems a little vain to me. I kind of took a little bit different view on that. I don't think that Jesus necessarily was not confident. I think that he was not ready. We're still just met Thomas. He hasn't added, he hasn't got his whole group together yet. I still think he, there's some things he needs to do with him, get them where they need to be. We're still kind of getting to that point. When he starts doing public miracles and it's going to put more attention on him. So I don't think he's ready to have that attention on him yet. Even when he does the wine, is it really that public? I mean, what he did with the fish was actually more public than this. I mean, he kicks everybody out. He's like, leave. Yeah. And then when you cut, nobody still knows that he made the wine. I just think that this family is. I mean, so it still wasn't a public hit at that time frame. I just don't think he's it's a good point. ready. I just don't think he's quite ready yet at that, at that time frame. Yeah, I agree with you, Jason. Absolutely. And I again, when it comes to confidence, I, I didn't mean to mislabel that in terms of how I was presenting that. It just, like you said, he's not ready to make this uh, a public event. And he doesn't. He still does it behind a closed door. He sends everybody else out. And then, you know, the people come back in and then all of a sudden, like, oh, hey, all these barrels that were filled with water, now wine. So I completely agree with you on that. I think he is feeling, John, I I think on the subject of doubt, I think he is feeling doubt about the timing. If you pair this with the analogy that they're about to bring up between you know, masonry and maybe what a blacksmith would do. And you pair that with what John Mm. the Baptist said. I think he knows that when he goes public, the heat's going to be on. Like people are going to try to kill him. People are going to be after him. So he sees this moment like stonework. It's a moment that you cannot erase it. Once you get on this ride, it's not going to stop. And so I think that's kind of what it's about. Now, what I thought was interesting was the way that they started the analogy, because one of the disciples was talking and sharing this analogy. It might have been the one I keep calling Adam Sandler. I'm not sure. Or Andrew. <laughs> but he, he talks about, you know, if you want to reshape a horseshoe, you just put it back in the fire and then you the hammer away. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I thought that was supposed to symbolize the turning water into wine because the idea if god is the creator and the laws of physics were either created by him or exist as a result of him you know he can reshape whatever he's made so he can reshape water into wine but then it goes into the masonry the stoneware 
example. And I thought then the analogy shifts to talking about the timeline. Like if you do this miracle, you cannot undo it. Uh, yeah. If you go public, your time is now limited. Like the countdown timer has started. Uh, there's a debate about how much knowledge he actually has because it seems like he doesn't have full access to God's knowledge. So he doesn't necessarily know when things are coming. So there'd probably be some human feelings there, some doubt and things like that. I, I like to say, but do you, do you think that he knows that he's going to get, get killed? I mean, I, I kind of get the feel that he does. Even yeah. in the opening scene, his mom's like, can you help us get through this? In the way his face, he's like, yes, I'll, I'll be there for you. Something like that. I think he already knows what's going to happen. So I think that's when you talk about the stonework. Once you start, you can't just rewind it and start over again. So I think he's, goes back to, I don't think he's quite ready for that. Also, another point. I know what's with the series is they're doing a real good job at humanizing Jesus. And so then if you ever watch like a movie, you get into the character, then the character gets killed and you're like, Oh, it has some emotion. So here we see him, he's talking with people. I mean, he's at the wedding, like a regular guy, just drinking wine, dancing, having a good time. You know, I think sometimes we as society, particularly religious people don't look at it. They see Jesus is just this religious person. He's not really man. And here, I think you're doing a good job. I got to feel like doing that for a reason. Make us, it gets to the point where bad stuff happens, that there is emotion in our behalf. Yeah, and that was intended because I read an article I skimmed today. I don't know if it was the guy playing Jesus who said this or Dallas Jenkins, but one of them said they have a hard time connecting with Jesus when they see other Christian movies and stuff. And so that's the reason they made the show. They intentionally wanted to, you know, bring in some human emotion to him i noticed that they kept referring to him as master i don't think i've ever yeah, heard of that yeah. before and so i was thinking like teacher professor or something like that but master i thought that was interesting i've seen it in some translations of the bible the trick is i don't know what the what the greek or the hebrew word was so i don't know <laughs> you know how accurate that is but so i mean like, yeah actually i was thinking about that maybe like master like teacher or something to that or Sometimes we'll say in Spanish, we'll say maestro. Mm -hmm. But again, we have Matthew earlier in the series calling Quintus Dominus. So I, I didn't necessarily get hung up too much on that uh, as far as, you know, master, teacher, him capitalized or he capitalized. I, I mean, I'm definitely noticing it, especially with subtitles on, but it, it didn't bother me too much in terms of the series at this point. I think the term master is funny. It's like, yes, master. <laughs> <laughs> say that to my boss as a joke. I'm so, afraid to do that to mine. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Jesus goes up to the guy with the wine. Is that Thomas? Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, Thomas. Okay. Thomas. yeah he goes up to Thomas, who I think is basically like Matthew Light. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, Join me and I will show you a new way to count and measure. And, and then he says, a different way of seeing time. And like, like, okay, so when he said that, I'm like, quantum physics. <laughs> Am I the only one who thought that was funny? <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> yeah, I think so, Nathan. <laughs> well, well I don't know. Like, was he before we started? No, I didn't. Oh, no, only one, only one. Like, he's getting ready to change the water into wine. 
Now he's talking about changing time and like counting different. How could that not be quantum physics? Manipulating time or I don't know. I just like how, how these people are so willing to, after they see one thing, drop everything and go follow him. You know, with the fish. Okay. Oh man, you brought me so many fish. I will follow you now. Thomas, man, he changed water into wine. I'm going to follow this dude. I'm going to literally drop everything in my life and go walk around this dude with 11 other human beings just because he turned my water into wine. Man, if, I'd be sitting back like, what? Time out. Like, like, let's dive into this. What did you do? What kind of magic shenanigans did you pull? Like, I'm, I'm not going to be like, all right, that's it. Well, sign me up. How'd you do that magic yeah. trick? Yeah. Oh. All I'm going to say is that people have done a lot more for a lot less. Uh, (laughs) So especially in those days, yeah, I think it would be pretty awe-inspiring to see this guy who's not a fisherman be like, hey, throw your nets out one more time, see what happens. And you do it, and then you got two boats full of fish that pays off all your debts. Or, you know, he closes a door on you, even though you don't see it actually happen. We've got multiple barrels full of wine at this point i don't know have you seen the have you seen the family guy i think it's family guy portrayal of jesus he's got the two fingers and he's holding them in front of him he's like da 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 he puts it behind his head yeah exactly yeah (laughs) and people are like oh i feel like it's like that i think there's a pretty significant issues like john said to the nets the nets are they're pretty much on shore i mean they're docked right there in like a foot of water two feet of water whatever it is and so he pulls in the wine, they're only out of the room for three or four minutes, if that. I mean, there's no way you could think it's the magnitude. It's not really, I'm sure they had magicians doing card tricks. And even Jesus is doing the thing with the shells there with the little kids, those types of tricks there, which is interesting that they actually had him doing those, like parlor tricks. But these are a lot bigger than that. So these are some things I think hard to explain. Okay, how did he do that at that level? I think if you get in their heads too, like if you think about them being Jewish, They've all memorized the Torah, you know, first five books of the Bible. They've got a lot of prophecies memorized. I think in their minds, the miracle itself was like the final proof, right? Because they've been expecting someone like this for so long. You're right. If you, if you isolate it to just those miracles, it does seem kind of nuts because I'd be sitting back asking more questions. So I, I think their upbringing and their expectations of someone like this is probably almost more weighty than the miracle itself because they were prepared for those moments i think otherwise yeah i don't know if they would have necessarily you know followed him after just some guy shows up in one incident i guess you're right if you think about the blind guy the first couple episodes are you the messiah no man i just walked by you and told you i'm not same person Mm mm-hmm I don't know, because, again, it seems like what's being taught in terms of the Jewish faith and the religious leaders is more so this conquering king that's going to be coming in and rising up Israel from the Roman control to where, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily ready to receive the message of this humble carpenter this kind of a vagabond that's wandering around. I, I don't know. I think they still think that he's going to lead a revolution at this point. They'll argue about it later. It is interesting, like, 
what kind of person would it take to, if you've got an expectation like that, to get someone to follow a non-soldier, you know? So that's an interesting thing to think about. But yeah, I, I think from what Andrew said last episode, I still think they think he's going to overthrow Rome at this point. We can probably expect that to come up and be a little bit of a source of tension later in the show. Yeah, so they all just get kind of crushed when he dies on the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I kind of think of, I'm going to read something long ago about, you know, there's a reason why he's picking the people he's picking. Let's use the example of Simon. You know, Simon's a, he's a strong guy. He's a protector. He's muscle. Matthew, Matthew's got money. You know, he's in so I was in the back of my mind thinking the people he's picking, what's the purpose? I mean, what's the totalitarian purpose of what's the rationale why he's picking these people? What do they bring to the table for his group? I don't think most Christians look at it that way. I was more of an like I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Thinking of that as he's picking them for things that they have to offer. Practical reasons. Yeah, practical reasons. I mean, there's probably something to that. These guys have to have some character probably too, but I mean, there could be uh, practical reasons. Like they have to be emotionally primed to, you know, leave what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys want to do some final thoughts? Do you recommend this episode? Did you enjoy it? What do you think? I like this episode. I'm going to buck the system here because uh, I know your guys' favorite episode is the dude in the field with the kids. But uh, this one, this one's definitely above that one for me. You know, you, you're starting to see some things come to fruition. You know, you've got Jesus with the beginning of his, his posse of disciples there and starting to learn more of the players in the game and starting to see more of the more well-known stories from the Bible coming to light. It's water and wine. I like this episode. You know, I, I like where this is headed. It's pretty interesting for sure. I would agree. I, I did enjoy it. I felt like it was very relatable. And again, kind of just taking it at face value and not necessarily going microscopic on scripture versus what's portrayed. You know, it, it was enjoyable to watch. And uh, I, I think the message that it's portraying is is valuable. I think with this one, I think, I know it's the last couple of episodes. I think we first, first one or two we talked about, they just threw a lot of information at you at one time. I know it's the last couple that are actually taking a little slower pace. I was thinking this episode was like, well, they spent a lot of time on it. They probably could have shortened that. It was 56 minutes. They probably could put that in 80 minutes. But I think they really kind of took their time trying to get that message in, trying to humanize Jesus, trying to point. I do. I thought they still throw a lot of names at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I agree with you, Jason. So this easily could have been a, like a 10 minute show. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I like this show. I, I liked this episode. It took me 20 minutes to really get into it, though. Like I said, there's a lot of background information about the wedding ceremony. That was a little bit harder to relate to. But once they get to the wedding, I mean, you see the disciples talking to each other, building a little bit of camaraderie. I thought that was really interesting. They're starting to contrast Jesus as being different than other religious leaders because Usually a student has to choose the rabbi, like the best student got to choose the rabbi. Well, he chose them and they wouldn't even qualify to study under a regular rabbi. So yeah, Jesus is just kind of, like you said earlier, bucking the system here. He's just kind of turning it upside down. 
I liked his debate with Thomas. Like I, I'm always for like the whole exploring questions and doubts thing. He, he tells them, I do not rebuke you for asking questions. It's good to ask questions, but his things he's asking are like straight up doubt. And he doesn't have any problem with that. So I really like the portrayal of Jesus. It's like very open to people. It's very friendly. Um, this, which is counter to modern day Christianity now. They don't yeah. like, it is what it is. Don't question it. Yeah, but I think it's true to scripture because he'll deal with doubt with John the Baptist because John later will ask, was Jesus the Messiah? Or do we need to wait for somebody else? And he doesn't seem phased by it. So I think it's a good, yeah, I, th I think it's a good portrayal. I really liked what they did with the miracle. I almost think they tried to explain it a little bit. So it just didn't seem like magic because, you know, like I'll show you a different way to measure a different way to count. And they brought in the, the blacksmith can put the horseshoe back in the fire and reshape it. Well, I think they're trying to like explain the unexplainable because like if there is someone who created this world then you know it makes a little bit more sense that they could reshape it so I, I think they were trying to put some logic behind the miracle they didn't do a whole lot there but I think that is really helpful for people like me because I really struggled with the supernatural stuff for a long time that's a way that I kind of talk myself out of my skepticism so I, I thought that was really interesting I just liked how they presented everything and they handled the material. Yeah, I, I recommend this episode. It's probably not my very favorite, but if you isolated the, the last 15 minutes, and that was really strong to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you got any, uh, any last words? One thing I, I know is, I think it's kind of intentional as well is, Jesus doesn't really hijack the show or what's gonna happen. If you look at the wedding, you know, they ask, oh, are you going to do some miracles, do something, you're going to teach. No, he's not going to teach. This ain't about me. This is about the wedding. Yeah, we're just going to relax. Yeah. He also does that, you know, back with the Shabbat dinner. He's like, no, I'm not taking over. It's, you're doing fine. And so I just think it's kind of interesting that he's not the center of the show. I mean, it's kind of like he's in the show, but it's kind of like not the focus of the mm -hmm. I had a note about the same thing, Jason. That was a big takeaway for me just in terms of humility and that air of humbleness going into this event that this isn't about me. This is about the bride and groom. It's not my day. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's pretty huge. And it was kind of glanced over in some ways, but I also think that may have played into some of the reluctance or at least the portrayal of reluctance in terms of him wanting to perform this miracle that took place, you know, in, in terms of, I don't want to make this event about me. These two people are, about to spend the rest of their lives together. This isn't my day, it's theirs. Yeah. That's a good point. I like it. He's a different kind of religious leader. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with episode six. If you want to send us any comments or questions, we would love to answer your questions or talk about you know, your comments on the podcast. On Facebook, we're under Church in a Brewery. On uh, Instagram, go to instagram.com slash breweryministries or go to breweryministries.org, comment on YouTube. You can find us there. And yeah, we'll see you back in two weeks. So see you guys. Yeah. Bye. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to Church and a Brewery's review of the Chosen series. If you enjoyed this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or your podcast store of choice. That's why they call me White Hands, because of what I do to your liver. You can contact the hosts or Church and a Brewery through the Church and a Brewery Facebook page, the Brewery Ministries Instagram page, or through our website, breweryministries.org. Send us your questions, fun comments, whatever you want. It's not enough to say hello. If you're in the Wichita, Kansas area and you want to talk about spiritual things over a craft beer, check out Church in a Brewery. We meet every Monday night inside Augustino Brewing at 7.30 p.m. Those who do the actual fishing are unholy, foul-mouthed, given to gambling in secret dens, and even fishing on Shabbat. The opinions shared in this podcast are the views of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Brewery Ministries Incorporated. Why must I perform? First I perform for Quintus. You taught God's law. Soldiers, then for for the slum dwellers. And this, what, what sort of performance is this? All music and sound clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are